have your Bibles, grab them. We are in the book of Luke this morning in chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. We're in our seventh week of Luke, and we'll be, we'll be working through all the way into Holy Week, which, because we're in a gospel, works out really well, because the end of most gospels tends to be <laughs> the things that you would cover during Holy Week. And so our, our walk through Luke will line up beautifully with the Holy Week and Easter narratives, and we'll look at a couple different of the gospel accounts when we get to that point, but um, we'll get to that. And then as soon as Easter is done, we're going to work our way through the book of James for a little bit, uh, and we'll also spend some time in Ruth, and so that's what's coming down the pike. Uh, so look forward to those things. But we've got a few weeks left in Luke. Uh, when, I, when we in the EPC, you know, we're part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, when we ordain pastors in the EPC, it's a pretty rigid process of ordination. You know, you have your seminary education requirements that are kind of par for the course that are pretty standard amongst churches. And then there's these rigorous ordination exams written and oral that you take and all these things. But it culminates in the final step before you can clear being an ordained pastor in a denomination is that you have to stand in front of the presbytery which is the local geographical area of a bunch of our churches. And so there's about 100 to 125 or so pastors and elders from all the churches around in the EPC there, and they get to kind of grill you for up to maybe an hour or so. You preach in front of them, which is terrifying, and then they, you just kind of stand like I do now, and they get to ask you questions upon questions until they're satisfied. Uh, and it's a process that I'm grateful for because I think it's, it's worth really examining pastors to make sure that they know the word, that they understand how pastoral leadership works and all these things. But there's one part of the process that as I go to meetings as a pastor now, drives me absolutely crazy. And it's this. Every single time there's a point in the exam where they are asked if they ascribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is good, and then they're asked if they take any exceptions. And there's one exception to the whole Westminster Confession that almost every pastor takes. I would say nine out of ten times. And it's chapter 21.8. It's the, it's the way that Westminster describes the observance of the Sabbath. It's, it's a very rigid way of describing the observance, and it suggests that things like leisure on the Sabbath are forbidden uh, if you read it a certain way. And so there's most pastors will say, I believe in all of it. I have an issue with the way the Sabbath is described, because it seems to suggest that I can't cut my grass on Sundays or, or just go to a ball game, uh, but I only have to sit in church and then go home and pray all day. Right? Now, I would question whether Westminster intended it in that way, but that's the thing. But here's what drives me crazy. There are people in every presbytery who, for them, this is the issue of their life. And no matter which way a person answers on stage, they're always hammered by somebody. You can't win with that question. Because if you take the exception, you get grilled on, well, why are you taking the exception? And if you don't, then there's people that grill you, well, why not? Right? And so it's like, it's the one time where any candidate who ever wants to be a pastor in, in Presbyterian just gets grilled to no end, and there's no way to win it. Right? I tried, and I just, I failed miserably too. Every single person looks silly up front because there's some sticklers. And here's why that's interesting. For all of Christendom, there seems to have been this obsession and stickling point with the Sabbath. It's nothing new, right? There's, it's this weird thing. We, we obsess about the Sabbath and what it means now in the church world, and it's no different than it was back then. If you read this morning's passage, it sounds familiar. This is kind of interesting to think about in light of our passage that we're getting into, because it's a passage about the Pharisees and Sabbath. 
And it's not the first time that we encounter a passage about the Pharisees and Sabbath. If you read Luke 14, 1 through 14, and you think, like, this sounds really familiar. I feel like we've been here before. It's because we have many times, right? For whatever reason, the, the Pharisees seem really intent on tripping up Jesus about the Sabbath question, right? And so when I read this passage, I have PTSD to my examination days, right? And I feel, I feel Jesus' pain of, like, can we just stop talking about this? Right. And so let's, let's look at the passage this morning, because as we'll see, Sabbath is the symptom, but Sabbath is not the disease that Jesus is trying to get at. It's not the heart of the passage. It's the issue that has the real issue kind of sitting behind it. And as Jesus continues to engage with the religious leadership of his day, we'll start to see what the real disease behind the symptom is. So this morning, let's stand, and we'll work our way through Luke Chapter 1, verses, or chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let's hear from the word of the Lord together. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So a couple of things right off the bat from this passage from the start. First, Jesus is invited to a house of the ruler of a Pharisee. Anyone here having deja vu yet? Seems to be a pattern. Um, at this point, we really have to question Jesus' sanity because he continues to go over and over to the houses of the, of the leader of the Pharisees, of one of the leaders. So this is a really high-up guy. This is kind of the, the high society of, of, the, of the people that lived in this region, of the religious leadership, right? You're not coming there if you're a, a lowly peasant. It's just the, the cool kid's table, and, and Jesus has been invited yet again. And it, as we know, every time Jesus gets invited to the cool kid's table of the religious leadership, it's not because they really like Jesus and they want to see him there. There's always something else going on, right? And you think he would learn, you would think that he would realize that every time he gets invited, it doesn't go well for him, but yet he continues to come back. And he, we, we can assume, based on who Jesus is, that he does it on purpose, right? as, we'll, as we'll see. The next thing it says is that they were watching him carefully, which is never a good sign. Right? When the Pharisees are watching you carefully, it's like being on the, on the list. Like if, if you ever, like, the FBI is like, you're on the list. Well, what list? You're on the list. The watch list, the what list, you don't want to be on that list. Whatever list it is, you don't want to be on it, right? 
And so he finds himself under the careful scrutiny of them. So he's invited to this fancy dinner with all the important people, and he comes, and they're all kind of glaring at what he's going to do. And then the final thing we learn is that we're told is there's this man there who has dropsy, which is essentially, it's edema. It's a buildup of fluids, right? Like you can visibly see how crazy ill this guy is, right? He's suffering and he's struggling, and it just says a man. It doesn't say that he's important. It's not one of the Pharisees happened to be caught ill when he was there. It's, it's the man is there. And it's a weird thing because, well, number one, Jesus was never going to be genuinely invited. There's a reason for him being there. Number two, they're staring him down. But this deathly ill guy sounds all of the alarm bells and takes the cake, right? He's unclean because of his illness. And, and he's a guest that would never have been allowed in the presence of those Pharisees. They would have never invited this guy even if he was a big deal, because he's unclean. And the Pharisees don't concern themselves with people that are unclean. They must go and make themselves clean before they can come and be in the presence of the religious leaders. And so the moment Jesus walks in and sees the room, and it's already awkward, and, and sees the guy in the corner, it's, it's like, okay, I'm not here for dinner. I'm here for something else, right? Just imagine the scene. He's, he's standing there, and it's, it's super awkward, and it's just, Oh, it just so happens to be the Sabbath again, right? All of these things line up, and it becomes about the clearest trap if there's ever been one for Jesus. There's a setup happening, right? But here's what's beautiful. The Pharisees set up this whole thing, right? The, the Sabbath guy is in need of healing. They invite him, and all of this whole thing is orchestrated by them because they want to trap Jesus in some way, and Jesus knows it immediately, I love when you look at verse 3, right? He says, verse 3 starts this way, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Well, they didn't say anything yet, right? They didn't ask him a question. They didn't speak to him. They didn't look at the guy and say, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do about this guy? There was no words exchanged. Jesus just reads the room, and he responds because he can already tell that they're, they're trapping him. They're doing something. And so his response is a preemptive strike in a way. And, and I love what he does, right? He, he, is, he is the guy who just sees the room and just goes at it. One of my, one of my favorite movies, uh, movie franchises is the Marvel franchise. And there's a scene in, if you've never seen it, in Captain America, I think it's Winter Soldier, where Captain America gets on this elevator just to go down. And then, like, it stops and two or three more guys get on the elevator. And then it keeps going down and two or three more. And soon it's like an elevator with, like, 15 other guys that are supposed to be friendlies, and he looks around and he starts to see little telltale signs that they're the enemy, like in disguise. And so he realizes he's in an elevator with like 15 burly people who are about to beat the snot out of him. And his response is simply this. He looks around and he goes, okay, anyone, anyone want to get off before we start? And of course, then they attack and he proceeds to just completely whoop them to pieces, right? Because he's Captain America. Jesus reads the room and he sees what's happening. He goes, okay, I see what you're doing here. Let, let's go. Let's start. And he starts in the most brilliant way. He asks them a question. He said to the lawyers and Pharisees, um, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It's, it's him asking the question before they ask him anything, flips the whole script of the, of the narrative of what they're trying to do, right? And it's a, it's a genuine question, right? Jesus isn't trying to start an argument or entrap them somehow. It, it's a real, genuine question. Rather than him being on the defense, now they are. Say, if they say, no, it's not, they are seen as uncaring people, right? 
If they're saying it's not lawful to heal this man, they are seen as people who have a hurting man in their midst and are saying, we don't care. But if they say yes, then they are violating their own Sabbath rules that they've been holding high and holding and lording over everyone else. And so they are now in a position where regardless of how they answer, they look terrible. Because Jesus is smart. You don't want to engage in a battle of wits with Jesus. He will own you every time, just like Captain America. But like I said before, this passage has nothing to do with the Sabbath. And Jesus isn't asking this question because he, he wants to deal with Sabbath issues. I think there's a way more important reason that he asks the question. And number one, it's, it's, a, it's a valid question. I think Jesus is interested in making them look not bad or in winning an argument, but making them look at their own hearts. And so he asks the question not to trip them, but because he actually wants them to think about it. Right? Let's, let me ask you, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? When you examine the whole breadth of Scripture, right, which we've all done this week, we read our whole Bible cover to cover, right? If we examine the breadth of Scripture, do we find anything that actually prohibits, that, that says we shouldn't heal a man on the Sabbath? if we find them to be in, in trouble or ill or struggling. If you had the power to heal this man and it was, it was Sunday and it was after church or even during church and you know, if somebody here started to go down on a heart attack and I somehow had the power to pronounce them healed, would it be lawful for me to do that on the Sabbath? Well, the answer is yes. It would be lawful to do. Right? The, the law that is being potentially broken here is a law that the Pharisees have created. It's unlawful according to them, not according to the word of God. That's the, that's the key distinction. See, the, the question he asks is not rhetorical. He really wants them to think about it. He says, let's ask yourself, is it lawful or not? It is lawful. To them it isn't, but in reality, to God, it is. Right? What this means is that the law the Pharisees are holding to isn't a law, because it's not of the Lord, but instead it's a tradition. It's something that they have erected around the law that God has given them. And that's what Jesus is trying to get them to see here. See, as people in church, we have a whole lot of traditions. Some we've had for years, for hundreds of years. Some we've had for, well, Presbyterians. So if it's two years in a row, it's a tradition that we've always done that way. Right? That's how we are as, as Presbyterians. Right? That's the joke. How many Presbyterians does it take to change the light bulb? Change? We don't change, right? But, but traditions are, are something that it's important to understand here as we get into this, that Jesus isn't against the concept of traditions, right? There, traditions can be a good thing, a, a great thing even, right? SPC as a church isn't against tradition. I am in no way against tradition. There are traditions that we have here that are, that are wonderful. There are traditions that I have as a, as a household at home, whether it's holiday traditions or just things that we as a family do each day. We have traditions around the dinner table and how things go. For us, usually the goal is just to make sure they all sit in their chair for the whole dinner, right? But we, we all have traditions and ways that we go about things. And see, the Pharisees had built up so many rules around the rules that no one could keep track. And what Jesus is against here is not tradition as a concept, but tradition that gets in the way of other things or exists simply for its own sake. Right? They likely weren't even sure as to why they had the Sabbath rule about healing that they did. I bet you if you pressed the Pharisees of that day as to, well, why, why is it that you say we can't heal a man on the Sabbath? 
they probably wouldn't have a good answer for you. Why? Because it's a law that was built around another tradition law that was built around another traditional law that somewhere, somewhere, someone read, keep the Sabbath holy and interpreted and interpreted and interpreted and interpreted and built up upon it to make sure it would be holy to the point where nothing could be done other than just like sitting in prayer. The Pharisees had rules about how many steps you could walk on the Sabbath. I always wondered what happened if you walk more than half the amount of steps away from your house. Like, you wouldn't be able to go home <laughs> until sundown. <laughs> like, if like 100 steps is your max and you walk 60 steps by accident, you look back and you can only go 40 more and you're just 20 steps from your house. What do you do? Sit there and pray and twiddle your thumbs until sundown when the Sabbath is over? But that's what they would do. They would be so stringent, right? And, and, and by the way, what Jesus is trying to simply do here is to make them understand that they, they just concocted this rule out of thin air for no reason, right? It, it, it's a thing that they did, and it started to, to hurt people. And that's where Jesus gets angry, right? The rule started to get in the way of loving people. By the way, that's, that's the definition of legalism. You're like, well, what is legalism as, when we talk about churches and legalistic churches and legalistic Christians? Legalism is when, when the rules get in the way of loving people. And Jesus is asking this question in hopes that they might ask themselves, why don't we allow healing on the Sabbath? He genuinely wants them to think about it. He's not trying to trip them up or be the smarter guy in the room. He wants them to think about it to the point where their hearts are engaged in, in the way of their thoughts and, and to shift their way of doing things and approaching the world and, and where they're coming from and to say, look, why is it that we have this rule? Because if they asked themselves that question with any kind of genuine heart, they would come upon the answer of there is no good reason why we have that rule. His point is that tradition can be good, but it gets in the way of loving people way too much, certainly in the life of the Pharisees and also in the life of us today. And I think the church world, we have a lot of unthought traditions. We have a lot of things that we just do for the sake of doing them. These aren't things we always do for a very good and understood reason. We always have an Ash Wednesday service. That's a good tradition. We don't just do that because it's Ash Wednesday and it's what we do. We do that for very good reason because we understand that the more time that we focus on understanding ourselves as sinners, the more likely we are to be rejoicing and grateful for the saving work that Jesus has done. The moment we, the moment we think we're good is when we think we don't need Jesus and then we go and live life on our own, right? And so we need to be reminded of our own mortality and our own inability to dig ourselves up by our own bootstraps to pull ourselves up. That's why we have that kind of service. That's a great reason to have a tradition. Right? But the things that Jesus is after are things that they've, they've done them forever that way, and no one really knows why. Right? Well, if you ever thought to ask, why should we keep doing them? Jesus wants them to see that the spirit of the rest of Sabbath is good, but they took it way too far. They cared more about the rule, and they cared about people. This is why I love the way this passage continues. They, they, it says they fell silent. They remained silent. They didn't have an answer. And so Jesus could have gone on teaching. Right? He could have droned on and on and on the way I sometimes do. But instead, he just doesn't say anything at all. He just heals the guy and sends him on his way. Like, you got nothing to say? Okay. Be healed. You can go home now. You've, they've embarrassed you enough by putting you in the midst as a, as a puppet to try to get to me. Be healed and go. And after he leaves... He then picks up and starts asking them some more things, right? He just heals the guy and sends him home. 
And then he keeps asking them questions. I love this. Who among you having a son or ox fall into the well on Sabbath won't immediately pull them out? And they, again, they couldn't reply because, of course, it's a ridiculous premise. Anybody here a strict Sabbatarian? If your kid fell in a well on Sunday, would you look at them and go, hey, just hold tight. I'll be back tonight. No. You pull them out. And then he brings in the ox because what he's trying to show them is their legalism has blinded them so much that if one of their own livestock were in trouble, they would abandon their Sabbath rule but yet they won't heal this guy who is in pain right in their midst, on display for for the embarrassment for all to see. They're so blinded by their own legalistic junk that they fail to see this person for who he is. And Jesus demonstrates here with an undeniable clarity that for him, loving and caring for people trumps legalism every single time. Compassion and care of others always comes before rules and regulations in the kingdom of God. Now, a caveat here before people get mad at me, because this is the kind of thing I get emails about on Monday. This doesn't mean that we get to break the actual law or rules of God himself. We don't compromise on the truth of scripture in order to appear loving to somebody. There are things that Scripture teaches that can make people angry. And we don't compromise those things in order to love. That's not love at all, right? Because that that draws them further away from their Creator who intended them in a specific way and purpose to to be the way they are. And so to, to lie about the truth of the Lord in order to appear loving is in fact not loving at all. This is not Jesus suggesting that we compromise truth in order to love quote-unquote, people in our own midst or out in the community. That's not, that's not what it's saying. I put love in quotes because that is. That's not a, a loving thing at all. But, but the man-made stuff, the traditions, the, the legalistic things, the walls that we've built around God's word, the things that we do because, well, that's what you do when you're at Stoprez. Those kinds of things. Or that's what you do when you're a Christian. Christians don't dress this way. Is there a dress code anywhere in there? I didn't see one. If you find one, please let me know. I will wear a tux next week to church if you point it out to me. I will dress the way Scripture tells me to dress. No ifs and buts about it. But there are churches that are like that. If you walk in and you look a little disheveled, it's like, well, that's not how you're supposed to come. That's legalism. The man-made stuff, the stuff that we add that always... That always needs to come second, the love and the care of other people. And this is a really hard truth practically because it means that we have to be willing to abandon our traditions for the sake of love of neighbor. And we love our traditions. We do. We don't even know, every single one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't actually know how much we love our traditions until you take them away and we're embittered and we don't like something. And then we start to realize, oh man, I actually like the traditions of church I think sometimes more than I like church. I like the the style of church more than I actually like the idea of church. I like the the worship style more than I like church. I like the people. That's why when you ask somebody, what brings you to a church? Well, I like the music and and the people are nice. We have preferences. It's not bad to have preferences. 
but it is bad to elevate those preferences above love of other people. Right? That's, that's where it gets tough. Right? Within the church, it means that we have to be willing to do things differently than we've done them when it can be a way that more effectively loves people and cares for people. It means that we relinquish things, our own desires and needs and preferences for the sake of other people, even those ways that we don't really like so that we can be more faithful out there. I remember one of the, uh, the greatest conversations about worship that I ever had is uh, it was the last church I served. There was a gentleman that every once in a while we'd do a little bit of contemporary worship in a very traditional church and, you know, it would get people really, really uppity because they were used to a pipe organ. And so if you brought anything else in, there'd be just the, 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 the angry committee that would somehow form, right? There was one gentleman, he was like in his mid-80s, and he would come up and he'd say, you know, that's really not my song preference. And you were gearing up like, oh gosh, here it comes. And you'd say, but, you know, I'm okay with that. Because there's some people that really like it. And I want them to be here. Because they should know about Jesus. That's so healthy. <laughs> right? That's such a healthy, it's not even about, I don't care about music or styles. It's, it's so much far beyond that. But that way of thinking is such a healthy way of approaching church life. Here's a person who says, you know, I, I have things I like and that's Okay. And I'd love if we did them sometimes, but, but I understand, and the fact, I, I more want people to be here than I want my way. Right? That's, that's when we get out of legalism, when we start to think that way. It means that we don't get our favorite comfy ways all the time, and even more, it means that you can't just accept that reality, but you actually need to embrace it in order to love other people. It means in some way, to, to exhort our humility and to raise other people above ourselves, right? And this is the heart of the issue here. And we see that Jesus gets into that as we keep reading. That's why this passage is connected to the next part that we read, right? So after Jesus heals the guy and sends him on his way and he talks about the ox, it says again, they couldn't reply to these things. And so then, you know, he, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So Jesus has this conversation about healing and the Sabbath and the ox and the sun, and they're quiet. They have no way of answering him. And then he's just kind of observing the, the dinner. The dinner keeps going on. And he's just, just looking around. And he starts to notice kind of how people are jostling for position. We don't really think about dinner table prominence, but in, in Jewish culture, where you sat at the table was an unbelievable kind of indicator of what your status was. The closer you were to the, to the host, right? If you were sitting at his right side, you were one of the, you were the most important person there, the guest of honor, and kind of the further away you got, the least significant you were, right? Maybe you were the guest who was all the way at the other end of the table and they didn't have a place setting, so you got to sit on the, on the floor, crisscross applesauce, and eat your bowl, right? That was the lowest of the low. You, you, you are jostling for position. And so the dinner is getting ready to start, and he notices that all these people, they're all trying to sit as close to the host as possible. They're trying to get the, the most favorable position that they can. Right? And so he tells us this story and, and talks to them about this kind of dinner etiquette of how they're supposed to choose their place at the table. And it's obviously a metaphor for something else, right? And so he gives them this, this etiquette. He says, don't, don't sit so far up. Because here's what happens. The further up you sit, the more likely that the host will make you move. Like, everybody will see you sit down at that place. But if that place is sent for, saved for someone else, the host is going to come up to you and ask you to move down. And then all eyes will be on you as you essentially take the walk of shame down the status ladder. Right? That's no good. Right? 
But he said, instead, always sit lower than you, than you think you ought to be. Because if you sit in the, lowest, in the lower of places, right, what will happen is the host will see you and go, no, 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 I, I meant for you to be here. And, and then all eyes will be on you as you get to move up and be brought up to the front. Right? And that, that's a way better way of existing. It's always better to assume yourself here and be brought here than it is to assume yourself here and be sent low. No one wants to do that dinner table walk of shame. Right? It's hard for us to imagine that kind of status thing because at our dinner table, the place of honor is the place that's furthest away from our kid that throws food. Right? It has nothing to do with where at the table you sit. It's just, are you out of the trajectory path of, of Aaron throwing stuff? Right? I like to sit as far away as possible. Just swat it as it comes. Right? <laughs> but but the, best, the best way that we can often think about it is there's one place that I know that we still have this mentality, and that's when you go to wedding receptions. You ever think like, well, where did they put me? You're like, ah, oh, I'm right there. I can see the first dance without looking at a column, right? Anybody here ever get sat with the vendors at a wedding? That's the lowest of the low table, by the way. If you're ever sat with the vendors, that means like you were invited, but people said no first, right? And there was all of a sudden room. Right? As, a, as a matter of fact, when I go to weddings, if you ever invite me to a wedding, please sit me at the vendor table. It's one of the best conversation tables that ever existed at weddings. The stories of, of wedding vendors is just worthy of like three hours of your time. So I enjoy it. But we, we, we understand the status thing when we look at weddings, right? And he, he, he ends with everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. The heart of the issue at play in this passage was the humility of the Pharisees or the lack thereof. They consistently used their traditions and laws to exalt themselves above everyone else, right? Their traditions, the laws that they created, they were actually created and designed subconsciously around ways that they already were and acted, the things that they already were and did, right? Like, imagine if you got to set all the rules for social etiquette. You would just look at yourself and go, well, what do I do? I'm going to make that the rule, because then I'll be the one that keeps all the rules perfectly, and everybody else will have to live up to my standard. That's what they were doing with the laws and traditions that they created around them. They were designed to make themselves puffed up and look good so that, so that their way could be the way. And anyone who didn't fit could be made to feel like they were lesser than. That was the legalism of the Pharisees. And Jesus is proclaiming that this is not the way it's going to work in the kingdom of God. And they better get used to it. Those who live humbly will be exalted, not the proud, the mighty, the puffed up, the legalistic. And so the, the Pharisees remain silent in the end because he has so clearly exposed their hearts in a way that they don't even understand yet. Right? I don't even think they, they realized that their hearts were as messed up as they were. But he just lays it bare. They are really interested in the concepts of church and godliness, but they aren't really interested in actual godliness. Right? Because the real God is not in the business of self-aggrandizement. The real, the real God, he is in the business of loving and caring and humble service of others. He sends his own son to become human, to serve, not to be served, and to die for all. If we are to call ourselves Christians, we have to follow Christ in this. Right? 
If we're followers of Jesus, we actually have to be followers of Jesus. We have to continuously lower ourselves for the sake of others who need care and love. And as individuals, we look all around us everywhere we go when we give ourselves sacrificially to other people. As a church, we always examine our way of doing things. We always say, we don't ever stray from things that are are biblical, but I will never compromise truth of Scripture in this church. You're never going to see me compromise this in order to make someone else out of these walls or in these walls feel better. That's never going to happen, right? But I'll tear down every tradition in this building that's man-made if it gets in the way of loving our neighbor. If it's made of man and not of God, and it can get in the way, and we can ditch it and love our neighbor better, it's gone. If it gets in the way of caring and bringing life to the people in our community around us. Those traditions, we need to rip those down brick by brick. We need to pray for the Lord to reveal to us what they are. Because right? we get entrenched, and that's not a bad thing. We're not, it's not because we're bad, horrible people somehow. It's just that we, we like to get stuck in what we're stuck in. We get familiar quickly. The joke of Presbyterians and change is because we're just, we're naturally, it's a human thing. We're resistant to change. We, we like things the way they are. Right? It's not in and of itself a terrible thing, but it is when it becomes something that is a barrier to the love of other people. And the more we do that, the more we'll be free and clear to love in a way that is transforming, the way that Jesus would, not the way that we like to think Jesus would. And that's the thing that will change lives and win people to the kingdom. We have to ask ourselves, do we want church the way that we want it, or do we want a church that is full of people who know and love Jesus? I don't know about you, I want the latter. Because that's a kingdom that people will be dying to be a part of. Jesus here exposes their hearts. He lays it bare. He tells them, those who humble themselves and put others first, they'll be raised to a seat of honor at the table. They will be the ones who are exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of humility. Lord, that you you aren't... Jesus didn't come into a a dinner and and preach at at a choir, but he, he, he proclaimed that which he lived. He demanded humility all the while living humility. Reduced himself as the God of the universe to human form. Humbled himself to come not to to reign at first, but to serve and to love and to heal and to care and to show compassion and to die so that we might live. So, Father, we pray that as we learn each and every day as as, as followers to to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that, that we would slowly to ourselves more and more die so that others might live. That we would not just say that we are followers of Christ, but that we would actually walk behind and follow the pattern of what Jesus did. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, for the sake of others whom he loved. We praise you that because we live in light of a gospel that no matter how much we humble ourselves, you promise us that in the end we will be exalted. We don't remain in that humbled, low position, but as we continue to walk in a deeper and deeper humility that you promise that you raise us up to the highest place to sit at your right hand. Help us, Lord. 
Help us discern those things. We, we talk about this in principle, but Lord, it's, it's really hard to figure out what are the actual things in our own lives, uh, individually and as a church, that, that need to die. We pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. We pray that in the light of all the, the members here, the, the leaders here, the, the volunteers here, and all the people that make this church run, that you would start to bring these things to light. Lord, that we want to be a, a church that doesn't get stuck in the mud, but we want to be a church that continues to prune so that we might grow. That we don't just abandon traditions because we want to. We're not a church that just wants the old out and the new in, but we want to be strategic and we want to walk under your guidance and spirit to prune off those things that, that need to be pruned in order for growth to happen the way that you have planned and call it to. Help us do that. Give us your wisdom on our own and as a body, we pray. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.